We are up to the middle of our messages. We're on the fourth message from Titus. So we'll read Titus 2, verses 1 through 10, but I will read verse 16 from chapter 1 as well. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would awaken our minds, awaken our spirits to where we can benefit from this, that we will come away uh, not just with knowledge in our heads, uh, but with conviction in our souls uh, to live for you in the week ahead. We give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. I mentioned this is the fourth message, and so we're in the middle. We have seven messages, and we are at number four. And when I put this together, it did appear to me, and Ray just asked me, and uh, it did appear to me that this is somewhat chiastic, the whole book of Titus. And so when I laid it out, I had two different groupings of the texts. One I had in five groups, and then I had a group of seven. And yet each placed this uh, somewhat at the heart of it. We are... uh, Following up today with training troops, now, the first was following orders, and that was where Paul gave Titus his marching orders on Crete. The second one was where we discussed the role of the elder in the church and the qualifications of those elders in the churches. And then last week we talked about how he really needed to begin by setting the tone and opposing those that were opposing God and yet proclaiming God's name in while they're attempting to steal the hearts of the people. So that one was on establishing discipline. So today, the message is somewhat similar, uh, and actually I I wrestled with some of these names uh, back at the beginning. But uh, the very first thing we start out with, and the reason that I wanted to read verse 16 from chapter 1, is we start out with the word but, and so we're contrasting. Paul is contrasting what he wants Titus to do with what he's saying these villains, as I had put it last time, were doing. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. So the first commandment he gives to Titus is to speak. And you might just take that for granted, but really, Titus is on this island, this big island, and from what we can tell, he is the guy that Paul is going to rely upon. 
and yet he needs to take the initiative. We talked last week about rebuking those that are opposing God's plan, and here he has to then share God's plan. What is the positive message that Titus is going to bring to these people? It's not enough to know the truth, and sometimes I am frustrated by the fact that I know so much more than I appear to be uh, willing or able to share with people. And so God has made us to be sharers of his word, not just repositories of it. So hopefully he, our, the Holy Spirit will enable all of us to become more and more outspoken in sharing the truth with those we come into contact with. There is, I, and I've mentioned it once or twice, there is a favorite palindrome that I have. And so a palindrome is that word or phrase that's spelled the same frontward and backward. And my favorite is a man, a plan, a canal, Panama. And so when you reverse that, it says the very same thing. And uh, what I like about that little palindrome is that it contains vision, planning, and execution for this huge thing that was built, the Panama Canal, uh, over 100 years ago. And so this really succinctly is very visionary in saying what it is that was accomplished. And this is what I would like you to think about in terms of what Titus is being asked to do. What he's being asked to do is nothing less than do what uh, it is that Phil opened our service with, and that is, through God, the power of the Holy Spirit, transform the entire culture of the island of Crete, hundreds of thousands of people. And Paul is challenging Titus to do that. I mean, that's just an audacious goal. And yet that is what it must begin with. It must begin with vision. God has given me something that I must share with others. So in our text of 10 verses, there are five social groups that Paul uh, has Titus address, and they come in this order. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and then bond servants. So the older men are obviously the ones that are expected to be leading, leading the society, leading in the homes. The older women are those that are designed by God to be the helpers in accomplishing this. So he addresses the older men and the older women because they really are the leaders of that society on that island. Then you have younger women. And the interesting point here is that it's the older women that are to mentor the younger women. And so that's why it naturally connects from older women to younger women. And then he introduces the young men and says, Titus, you are the pattern for the young men that I want them to follow. And then lastly is the bondservants, and he, and he stresses obedience and submissiveness. And so we'll go and th work through all of these, but I wanted to begin with just that little brief overview. So verse 2, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, sound in love, sound in patience. So sober, that the older men be sober. Now this really isn't what we might think of now as sober. Sober means to be not drunk. But this really meant to be serious. You're a serious person. He wants these older men to be serious people. Now serious does not mean without humor, entirely grave. Now there are people like that, and perhaps they are like that naturally. Perhaps they're like that, though, because that's what they think they're supposed to be. Um, but I really think a good illustration of just how non-serious a serious man can be, 
I think a good example of that is Tom Penning. Uh, Tom Penning can be a joker. If you don't really know him well, he's a CPC elder down in Wichita. And pretty much you know anytime he opens his mouth to suspect a joke coming at you. But he can be very serious. And he, of course, treats his role as an elder and God himself with utmost sincerity and seriousness. And so when he's about to do that, though, he'll typically caution you because he knows he's perceived as the joker, but yet he'll say, what I'm about to say is very serious. And I've never heard him abuse that yet. I've never heard him use that to set you up for another joke. No, he's about to share something with you very serious. He wants you to take it seriously. Sober, reverent. These words actually overlap in many ways. Sober, reverent, temperate. But to be reverent is to be respectful. And it's not just of God. It's respectful, respectful of people, respectful of traditions, respectful of what other people value to the degree that, of course, our word accords with it. But so an older man is to be serious and respectful, and he's to be uh, temperate. And I have broken that down into two words. A temperate man is patient and he's prudent. Patient in that he's not quick to rush to judgment, He's not quick to criticize, and he's prudent in that the wisdom is informing that. And so, of course, we have James that tells us to be cautious with our words. Think before you speak. This is a wise, prudent, temperate, older man. Matthew Henry said in this commentary on this portion, said this, those who are full of years should be full of grace and goodness. Those who are full of years should be full of grace and goodness. The inner man renewing more and more as the outer man decays. Now, some people come to the Lord late in life, and so we might cut them some slack in terms of meeting this qualification that Matthew Henry states. But really, with age comes wisdom, the opportunity for it at least, even if we're not taking advantage of it. So even if a person does come to the Lord late in life, they've lived enough to where they should then gain much, much wisdom from that reservoir of knowledge and experience that they have. And so older men should be counted upon then to be full of grace and goodness. But Matthew Henry goes on to make this comment. But aged persons are apt to be peevish, fretful, and passionate and need to be on their guard against such infirmities and temptations. Every age we move through, every social strata we as people move through in life, you're going to have challenges unique to that era. So I think we want it to just get easy. It should just be much, much easier now. I'm, I'm 70, 80, 90 years old. Uh, being, behaving in a sanctified way should just be such a snap for me now. I've had all these many years to learn the ropes, but we know it's not like that because with each strata we move into, there are these new challenges. I remember, uh, I forget who the funny historian is out at Westminster. Uh, he went on to run the school. I think he's running it now. But uh, he, I heard him speak once at, at the PCA church out in Escondido, and he was joking, and it, it was very funny, but he was talking about how uh, when the elderly get together, there's often an organ recital. You know, I've got pain here, I've got pain here, I've got pain here. 
<laughs> thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. But, uh, but now that is a very funny man. And he was actually uh, commenting on Calvin at the time because Calvin had a lot of bad health. He died young and he died in bad health. And yet we do tend as individuals to be focused on self a lot. And it doesn't really diminish with age. As a matter of fact, I think sometimes the elderly, even though they're saved, kind of think, I earned my spurs. It's time for you to deal with my complaints. Yet that's not the way a godly older person should behave. It's not how they should think. Uh, that sanctification penetrates even into our older years where we are dealing with a lot that the younger people won't understand until they reach there. And, it, and it's kind of sad, but it's the truth. And so we have to then cut everybody slack uh, that really can't relate to what it is that we're doing. Now, there are two sets of three here. The older men are to be sober, reverent, and temperate. And then they're to be sound in faith, sound in love, and sound in patience. And so they kind of come in sets of three. To be sound in faith is to know what it is you believe and to ex execute it accordingly. So in other words, you are informed of your faith and you are secure in your faith. To be sound in love is to have our passions in check. We don't allow sin to easily rock our boat, disrupt us. These passions ought to be in check. We know what we love. We know who we love. We know what we hate. We know who we hate. These things are things that older men should have, in, have squared away. They ought, they ought not allow their heart to be wooing them away so easily as sometimes the young and impatient are. Sound impatience. And here again, not easily offended. You know, we elderly... As, and I, I guess I'm not elderly yet, right? It's always the next you know, decade or whatever. But so as we get older, we can choose to just become impatient with people. Again, we've kind of earned that right. And no, no, you should be called upon for greater patience with people than less. And uh, I think I might have shared this once, but years ago at my work, we took a survey. Pretty much our whole IT department did. And this survey was supposed to give you insight into your character. And then many people posted them up on their cubicle walls. And it gives you insight into other people's character that you work with. And so now you know why it is at times that you're not relating well. Well, I believe the intention for that is so that you have greater understanding of other people. Not so that you can, you can tell them, I'm like this, just leave me be. I don't need to be like you and I don't need to relate to you like you are. That's abusing the privilege you have at that point. Um, we are given this information such that we can relate better with one another, not that we can lord it over one another. And I believe for the elderly, it's the same thing. As you become older and as you have this reservoir of knowledge and wisdom, use it to God's advantage. Don't just use it to uh, try to attempt to prove that you're right. Aged Christian men should be pillars in our churches. They might not be officers. They may be things that, that uh, not necessarily disqualify them, but render them unsuited for that or unable to fulfill that. But they really ought to be looked to for their wisdom. They ought to be in a position where their virtue, their wisdom is benefiting all the church. And so he moves directly from the older men to the older women. The older women likewise that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. 
So he begins this with the older women, likewise. And he'll use that term later again. Likewise, I believe, is a word that's connecting it and saying, don't discard all that we've just talked about relative to these older men. All of it applies to some degree to what I'm about to say to you concerning these older women as well. And if you think about it, they all really do. Sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love and patience. But then Paul emphasizes different aspects of that and applies it to the women. So he chose to stress four more things in verse 3 for these older women. First, the second word he used with the older men, he reuses here, reverent. He said to the older men to be reverent, and this is a reflection of this island culture that we're talking about. The older women were to be reverent in behavior. It's extended a little bit from what was said of the men. And in context, it's really that these older women ought to behave. They ought to have the deportment of a princess or a queen. They are that regal now. God has dragged you out of the gutter that was Crete. Evil beasts, lazy gluttons, liars. These Christians have been saved now from that, and they ought not value that way of living anymore. And when it comes to the older women, they really ought to have this deportment that, that sets them above all of that. They are, they are ladylike at this point. So see, they once were those things that Paul had criticized, but now they're not. And they really can't uh, excuse themselves with the fact that this is the way our island is or this is the way we are. And they ought to be not slanderers and not given to much wine. You would think that if we're going to talk about being drunken, and this is slave to drink, that's what it means. You would think that they would, that would be said of the men, but here it's said of the women. And I believe this is interesting in conveying to us just how deep sin has penetrated into the social strata of Crete. Because men in many cultures become drunks and stuff like that, but it's always on the periphery of that society. But here, strong drink, slaves to drink, and gluttony and slanderers are at the heart of the home. The women are being rebuked for behaving like that. So there is a lot of transformation that needs to occur in this culture. This culture has deteriorated more than, I believe, other cities that reflect such deterioration. And they are to be teachers of good things. Older women have tremendous influence in any culture. I don't care what culture it is. They have a lot of influence. It might be subtle. It might not be very visible. But they have a lot of wisdom, and they have a lot of impact. And that is for good or for bad. I read a book, I don't know, I've read many books about the Civil War, but one of them specifically talked about the women of the South and how the women of the South were so angered by the arrogance of the North that they were practically pushing their husbands and sons out of their homes. Go fight those Yankees. But Two and a half years later, after many bloody wars, and after the South has been ravaged, and they're having difficulty with everything, they're pleading with their husbands and their sons to come home. You must come home now. We're destitute. We need you. So these same women 
who 30 months earlier had been practically kicking their men out, saying, you're not a man if you don't go volunteer and fight those Yankees, were pleading with them to come back. But Southern culture was still such that there was a lot of honor caught up in this. And those men that did desert were often killed, often executed. Jefferson Davis did not have the empathy for the deserters like Abraham Lincoln did up north. Lincoln was always seeking any excuse to save deserters. He'd have a list of 60 deserters that were going to be executed in a week, and he'd be researching every one of them. And, and sometimes he'd, he'd like, like 40 or 50 of them off. But Jefferson Davis was a hard man, and he didn't cotton to deserters. They died. If they, if they were caught as deserters, they died. So see, women were in many ways behind this, those strong, independent women of the South. I'm not saying whether the war itself was good or bad or evil or not. I'm just saying that women were a strong influence in the South, much stronger than in the North, I would say. So we go on to verse 4, and this is what the older women are to do, that the older women admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. And let me just kind of begin there and kind of cut it apart. He gives these five traits uh, concerning women that come up in verse 5, but yet we begin with these, to admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. Now, who, who needs to be reminded to love their kids? What woman needs to be reminded to love their children, right? I mean, that seems outrageous that Paul would say this. But we can't use society's and culture's definition of love. When you look around modern culture right now in America, you have to see that the bulk of parents are not loving their children as they ought when they do not discipline them, when they do not train them up to, be, to have good manners and to speak with respect to their elders. That's not love. Many of the worst of the children growing up in our culture are going to be living in prison in 20 or 30 years. We have 2.6 million men in prison right now in this country, and more, it seems, by the day. They're growing up in homes where their parents supposedly loved them, their mothers loved them, but didn't train them up how to be good citizens. That's not love. To cast your children out into the world such that they're only fit to go to prison, such that they're criminals, they're evil, if you truly love children, you will train them up to be righteous, train them up to be obedient, to respect authority, because then you're protecting them. You love them, you protect them. The same thing with their husbands. If a woman loves her husband, she wants to serve him and have him be the best man he could be. But having counseled over the years, you just don't see that in all women equally. Some women will behave that way 90% of the time, but then the other 10% of the time, they're behaving pretty badly with their husbands. I have several proverbs on my wall at work, and one of them is, in all labor there is profit. I love that proverb. I don't always obey it, but I admire it. The next one I have is that it is better to live on the corner of a rooftop than in a house with a contentious woman. Now, I don't have that on my, my uh, wall because tablets like that at all. I have that on my wall to praise God that I don't have a wife like that because I work with some women like that. They're not all like that. I mean, I work with very nice people, but some of the people I've had to work with over these many years I've been there are really, really evil, and, and they, are, they are not women that you would want to have be your wives. I don't know a one of them that hasn't been divorced at least once. 
So we need to honor God in this. And so when the older women are to admonish the younger women to love their husbands and to love their children, it's love as defined by the Bible. What is it that the young woman must overcome then to do that well? Selfishness. And yet in our culture right now, what is being taught to young women through culture, politically correct culture, is practically the opposite. Go out there and get what you want. When you see a situation in a show or a movie where you've got a, a multi-generation represented older woman and a younger woman, it's almost always the older woman telling the younger woman, don't do what I did. Don't just get married. You know, you go get an education. You go, girl. That's what our culture is telling young women. And we've got to oppose that. It's going to lead to the destruction of our society. The next verse, and we'll begin with the first two, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, to be chaste. This is what the older women are training the younger women to be, discreet and chaste. So to be discreet is to be able to keep a confidence, is to not talk about something out of turn, to abuse trust that you have, or even a trust that you've somehow inherited because you learned something that perhaps you ought not to have, but circumstances led to that. But you are to be discreet. Proverbs 19.14 says, Houses and riches are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. A wise wife, a wife that acts with discretion, is a gift from God. And so you ought not, you ought not look askance at that. Chaste. To be chaste is to be faithful. And there are many ways. Of course, you go from one extreme to the other. But to be chaste ultimately means that your beauty is, you want it to be solely for your husband's benefit. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to dress in burlap sacks. But it does mean that when you get dressed in your home and you're about to leave that home, you're not thinking, I wonder if this man will look at me or that man will look at me. And yet, too often in our culture, that's how women think. Men lust, and women long to be lusted after. You can't forget that. So you need to then, the older women will train the younger women to, to drill that into their minds, think like that. Don't allow subtlety, because it can be so subtle that these are motivating you to behave this way. And don't allow it to, you know, attack that. Attack that subtlety. When I was a boy, I was probably 15, 16 years old, I became aware of a, a relationship because my dad was at this position at a trucking company and he had a man reporting to him and that man came to visit my dad. And somehow I heard this, I probably ought not have, but that man was coming to my dad to seek counsel. His wife was running around on him. His wife would go to the bar and pick up men it was just a sad, sad story. This was a very nice man. None of the people I grew up around were Christian, very, very few. He was a very nice man, big guy, scary guy. I certainly wouldn't want to have him catching me run around with his wife. But yet, he was just docile as a, as a, as a big animal. You know, I mean, really, I don't want to, to speak bad about him. But he was just a very docile big man. And it just broke my heart seeing how he was talking with my father and what was shared between them. Um, what could my dad do? All he could do is seek to understand. My dad wasn't a Christian. He wouldn't even offer to pray for him. But yet, um, 
I knew these people. I knew that family. They remained a family for years. He, he put up with this. He did not divorce his wife. They had like four or five children. Uh, but it just broke my heart. Uh, about 10 years later, I'm in Southern California, the very first church I joined after becoming a Christian, and I became aware of a family in our church. Um, they had a son and a daughter. The son had just married like three years earlier, and they had moved about 60 miles away. And I learned through the daughter that her brother's wife was doing this, was cheating on him. She was just bored. She was at home bored, and she had grown up in the church too, but apparently she wasn't very faithful, and she was running around on him. Um, and yet, he was such a good guy. I met him later. He was such a godly young man. He was, he was my age. He was like 21, 22. But yet, he was working with her to try to get her back into the home, to get her to stop doing this, misbehaving in this way. But see, chaste is, of course, the opposite of that. It's to be so far from this type of infidelity that you wouldn't even think like that. You don't even act like that or pursue it. And so it's just that is what the older women are training the younger women in, how to be chaste, the tremendous value that it is, and how jealousy uh, can just destroy a marriage so quickly. So now we come to the next three on the list, to be discreet, to be chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, homemakers. Now, I like to think of this as homemakers instead of home wreckers. Because again, some of the women that I've, the women that I've seen that I've tried to counsel with um, just don't seem to have uh, a perception, nor do many men, they don't have a perception of how their behavior is destroying the home. Um, and so we, we've got to get them to recognize, to see what it is that they're doing. And so a homemaker is such a better term than a housewife. I don't think a housewife is a very flattering term, nor do I think it's an appropriate term. Homemaker is so much better. Uh, this morning, I got up really, really early, and I saw uh, Dave Lane's uh, post. He posted on Facebook. He was a little melancholy. You know, his uh, days in his present home in Fort Calhoun are numbered. They've sold that home. They're going to be moving. And, and maybe, what, how long is it? Just a few days? Yeah. And so he, uh, he said that yet a house is not a home. A house is a house. And so he spoke of his family being his home. What man wouldn't? You know, my, my home is where my wife is. That's where home is. I want to read from Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 12. 31 to 10 to 12. Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. That is a homemaker. Let me continue at verse 27 to 30. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. So again, that is what it means for a woman to be good. That's a good woman. A good woman is described very well there in Proverbs 31. And the last phrase in uh, our text is obedient to their own husbands. Obedient to their own husbands. Obedience today is a bad word. 
To be obedient is to be uh, a, a doormat, especially for a homemaker, especially for a wife. It is just not an honored word or an honored uh, behavior in our society. Yet, I remember back, it was 1983, the spring of 1983, and I'd been a believer for like a year and a half, two years, and I met a couple at a Bible study. And so when, you first, when I first met this couple, I would have had no idea what they did. They both worked outside the home. But uh, he was a very quiet man, some, you know, godly man, but just quiet. His wife was kind of kind of chatty, um, but you could tell that she just loved on him. Uh, and who comes to mind for me is Cheryl and, and, and Scott Polsky. I mean, you know, the way Cheryl just kind of dotes on Scott. And, uh, and he dotes on her, frankly, too, but very differently. But uh, what I came to learn, though, was that this man drove a pop truck as his job, you know, delivering Coke products. And he'd been doing it for years. He intended to do it forever, I guess. He was just not a very ambitious man. Um, but he was very content. And then I found out that his wife had founded a company, her own temp agency, and it was very successful in the area where I was in Oceanside area. And so she had all these women that worked for her, and you'd have never, ever guessed it from meeting them at a Bible study. I mean, she did not have the arrogance that you would tend to want to associate with a person that was like successful like that. And you wouldn't tend to uh, see that respect that she was demonstrating her husband when he just drives a pop truck. But see, that just tells you that it can work. You know, there can be this, the, these uh, dual incomes and all this working, but it's not recommended. We have them as very uh, deliberate hedges in our world that we think that's wrong uh, to have the woman outside the home working in some other culture. But she was doing this. I think she actually did run her business from her home, though. Um, but yet it can be done. And when I saw the honor that she had for her husband. It was just remarkable. Whereas I've seen people divorce at UP where the situation was the woman had the better job and so the woman chose to uh, go to work and the husband was staying home to watch the kids. I saw two marriages like that. Neither of them has worked. They've both failed. Now, what is important in... Oh, there was another thing I wanted to mention along this line too. I... Uh, the other day before uh, I took Thursday off to supposedly work on this, um, but Hannah and I were bad, and I, I uh, asked her if she wanted to go to the half-price bookstore. So she went. We went with me, and, and we bought a bunch of books and then didn't let Tabitha know. <laughs> I just slipped them in with all the rest. But I opened this up, and now this is just a business book. It's a tiny book of a parable called Animals, Inc., a business parable for the 21st century, written by Kenneth A. Tucker and Vandana Allman. And I guess they're with Gallo. But... Uh, I read the, uh, what do they call that when they, they read the, when you, I forget. What? Dedication. Yeah, the dedications. So I want to read to you these dedications. Now, I don't know these people. It's a business book. It's from 2004. But this is Ken's dedication to his wife, to Judy, my helpmate, and my children, Kendra, Kristen, and Kenny, who are the fuel and spark for my imagination. But I loved how he started that, to Judy, my helpmate. That's Ken. And then Vandana. For my best friend and husband, Jeff, who always creates a clear path for us with his love and support. She credits her husband 
for being the leader in their home, even though she's written this book, co-authored this book with this other guy. Again, I don't know whether they're believers, but what's, what I find value, and I, and I really love this type of thing when I stumble on it, is God's design will prevail because it works and because he blesses it. And all of those that are doing all these odd and crazy things in our culture and attempting to pass laws against what is good and right, they will fail. We know that. Uh, it's foolishness what they're doing. And even if they get 60, 70, 80% of the people in the country to believe that this is okay, it doesn't make it right. And so we will still continue to see this type of stuff succeed, whether they're Christian or not. They are adapting to God's plan, whether they know it or not. And it will be honored. God will bless them. So verse uh, 6 of our text, we go on. Likewise, oh, and the last phrase I skipped there, I'll get back to that. Uh, what's, uh, the word of God may not be blasphemed. We'll cover that a little bit more later. But that's important that the young women conduct themselves in this way because otherwise it would bring uh, disparagement to God's name. Verse 6, we turn to the young men. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. There's only this one command to the young men, but it is the same command that was the first one for the older men. So again, it starts with likewise, and I believe all of it is absorbed by that. So the young man is not freed from all the rest of it, to be temperate and sober and, and uh, sound in faith and all that. No, no, no. He, he's he's uh, saddled with all of that. That's his responsibility, to pursue that path. But what is interesting to me here is that we go right into this thing. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed having nothing evil to say of you. He said this about the young men, and then he said all this about Timothy. And why? Because Timothy is the model that the young men will aspire to. They will want to be like him. He's going to, I'm sorry, Titus. He will become the leader in that community. And so he has this great responsibility, and Paul is saying, you are responsible for this. You are going to be the template by which they compare themselves. At work, when you're working on code, when you're working on anything that's going to have to be replicated, you want the first one to be good. You want a good pattern. Because if you don't get a good pattern and then you use it to create all this other stuff, you've now ruined all this other stuff because you've taken a bad pattern and you've, you've caused all of these bad replicants to be made of it. So see, life is about building good patterns, better and better and better, improving your patterns. And too often when we're young, we, we might not have grown up in a church like me, and then we're having children and, and we're attempting to lead them and guide them, but we feel so inadequate to the task. But God has designed that that way. He's forced us to go to him, plead with him in the midst of difficult problems that we've perhaps brought upon ourselves through our own bad conduct. But yet God brings us to our knees, brings us to him to make us appreciate the truth. And he has all of us learning this from a young age. Now, when you grow up in the church, it's wonderful. You begin with this huge advantage over the rest of us 
like me, and, and I think many of you have grown up in the church, but many of us that hadn't, we feel so ill at ease at first. We're, we're so tossed about. We're so, there's so many things that need to be, get corrected before we start self-replicating, so to speak. And typically, you don't wait to do that because by that time, you could already be married and be self-replicating. So it's important to get the pattern right. Proverbs is all about this. Proverbs is all about the pattern. I love Proverbs 7. You see this illustration of a man tutoring his son on what women to watch out for. And it's as if they're together, and he's telling his son, look there. Look at what's going on right here. And you can see this simple man being led away by this uh, harlot. Deuteronomy 6, we know this, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today, you shall, they shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. All of what you're doing, obviously. You're supposed to be living this word out and incorporating your children into it. And so he's telling Titus, you are the pattern, Titus. Live up to it. Remember it. And so he's to be a pattern of good works, integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. So good works, get active. Have the young boys get engaged with you, these young men. Get them engaged with you. Be a man of integrity. Be a man of your word. Honor your commitments. Reverence, revere God, and yet also revere other people for God's sake. Both tables of the law. Man is made in the image of God, and even if we have people in our society who, who don't appreciate that, and who mistreat other people, we yet don't have authority from God to mistreat them in return. So we must treat people oftentimes better than they treat us. We have no blank check from God to respond tit for tat with people. And Titus especially, he's going to face a lot of opposition by those that he just rebuked in the last portion of text. He's going to have to respond to them with character, with grace, with tact. Concerning incorruptibility, I believe corruption is, at its core, idolatry. So in other words, we are to pursue and be incorruptible, and yet to whatever degree we are corrupted, we allow ourselves to be corrupted, it's because we're giving in to something. It's because we're loving something more than God. Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt. So the corruption it has this negative aspect to it, and it's taking away from something pure, something holy. So Titus was to direct his gaze to heaven, and these young men were to see where his gaze is directed and to emulate him, to be like him, to value what he values, to set the goals that he's set, to follow them. Now, the pattern that we're talking about in verse 8 Sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. And again, I've kind of just covered that. But a, the, to me, the best biblical example of this is Daniel. Because in Daniel chapter 6, we read this. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. And over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them, so that the king would suffer no loss. 
Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors. There are only two other governors. The governors and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. Now the other governors knew what was in the mind and heart of the king. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful. Nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said to him, King Darius, live forever. And that's where they fool him, trick him into uh, having him establish this law that Daniel then must violate in order to remain a man of God. So be a Daniel. Titus was commanded to be this pattern, and Daniel would be a perfect pattern to pattern yourself after. Public figures, and to some degree, all of us are public in some ways. Some of us are public in many ways. When you see the politicians and the spotlight that's on them, public figures don't always want to be in the public eye like that. They might, may have aspired to it before they were popular, but now that they're so popular that everybody recognizes them, they often don't want to be popular anymore. Why? Because they're just then targets of attack, targets of opportunity. Titus is entering into that realm. He's going to be a target of opportunity. Whatever little flaw is found in you, in your conduct, in your behavior, in your words, gets exploited by the enemies. And so then, it may be something totally a mischaracterization. It may just be a lie, a slander, an out-and-out lie. But it could be something that you do have to acknowledge a wrong in. And so then you admit that wrong as a man of character. And you say that's now under the blood of Christ. So you don't want to give ammunition against yourself to your enemies, your opponents. Uh, you want to minimize that. And part of it is by being a man of integrity and living out your life above board. And let me read now verses 9 and 10. We kind of switch topics now to the bondservants. So this is the last category. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Now the first four categories are fixed. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men. They're all fixed based on gender and age. But this one is really cross-cutting. A bondservant could have come from any, any place. They could be young, they could be old, of either sex. And so I do believe it's appropriate for us to broaden this to the boss-worker category in our society. It applies. Well-pleasing in all things. All is the difficult word there. We can be well-pleasing in the choose, things we choose to be well-pleasing in and then just ignore the things that we don't want to be. But all things, we're to be well-pleasing in all things. That's a challenge, and it can't be our choice. It's what God has brought into our lives. Not answering back, that is so tempting, especially when we're wronged. You have to seek the opportunity to uh, prove to whomever it is that's potentially criticizing you improperly um, that they're wrong. And the more public, the more mistakes that are likely to be made. And so answering back, especially with attitude, is never warranted. You have to maintain respect. 
But you also have to seek to respond as tactfully as the situation allows. Um, if they're wrong, if they're misinformed, if they're jumping to conclusions, hopefully the calmer head in a later time will prevail, not pilfering. Sometimes you feel justified. You feel justified in taking something little. They'll never miss it. It's not that important. If, if, if they uh, knew what it was, they probably wouldn't care. We can justify theft in many, many ways. And yet, if you do feel that you deserve it or that this wouldn't be a big deal, then it's easy enough to go the legitimate route and request permission to have it or get it or have you use it. Then you can do it without a guilty conscience. You, can't, you don't need to then justify it. And then showing all good fidelity, faithfulness again, that you can be trusted. If you can be trusted in the little things, as Jesus said, then you can then be trusted in the big things, the biggest things. Showing all good fidelity, and this is the latter part of 10 now, showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Twice in our 10 verses, this type of thing has been mentioned. Concerning the young women, it said that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Their conduct was potentially going to reflect poorly on God. And now with the bondservants, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Now, why would it be that Paul would choose the young women and the bondservants to make examples that their conduct will reflect upon God? I believe it's because in society, they would have been the least appreciated, the least honored. The young women and the bond servants are down there. They're, they're like fourth and fifth on the list. Yet what uh, Paul is telling Titus is that don't think these people unimportant. Don't let them think that they are unimportant. They are very important. And it's funny in a way because their behavior their living out their lives as Christians had perhaps greater influence than any of the rest. Because if people looking into this Christianity can see how well-behaved those at the lowest social rungs are and how they behave with fidelity, then they think, wow, this is different. You know, you kind of expect to see that in the older men, but you expect to see the bond servants cheating and lying and stealing and slandering. But he's saying, no, no, no. You have a powerful influence upon this culture, and so respect that. Respect God. Now, they are, we are all ambassadors of Christ. Titus was being told by Paul, you are an ambassador of Christ. You are the model, the pattern for these young men. And so we are all ambassadors to various people. We all fulfill that role. And some of us have greater uh, opportunity to be that, again, with good or ill results, and some of us has far less. And yet these people on Crete, they had a reputation to live down. And he wanted them to acknowledge that and to know it and to fight against it. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. 
So all of us, just like the people on Crete, all of us when we come to the Lord, potentially have some reputation to live down, to overcome. In our youth, even if we grew up in the church sometimes, we weren't all that well behaved. We've heard Pastor Kaiser's stories. He, he wasn't an exemplary boy over in Africa, was he? You've heard my stories too. I was horrible. Now, I was not saved, but, but I can't excuse myself from that. So now, all of us have a reputation to live up to. We have a reputation to overcome. Are we headed in the right direction? Do we take it seriously? Do we want to be a good reflection upon our Lord? This title is Training Troops. Speaking as one who's gone through training in the military, training can be extremely, extremely boring, extremely monotonous. Day after day after day after day, the same thing, same thing, same thing. You don't necessarily perceive change day by day, but it comes. It comes steadily. And so don't think because you don't see change day to day, week to week, in yourself or in your family, in your children, in our church. Don't think it's not there. It is occurring. We know we have God's promise that he will sanctify us. And the degree to which we're pursuing it as we've, this whole uh, service has really been about being salt and light, having the church resume that role. Because to the, to the degree that we don't, we don't then honor God and God doesn't bless our society. We want to get God's blessing. We want to see other people in this country that don't know him now come to know him through his blessing. And so our training and our living disciplined lives is part of that. We don't earn salvation, but we do grow in sanctification and reflect God's light more clearly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that we do owe you a tremendous debt of gratitude for who we are, for what you have done in our lives to bring us into your kingdom. Don't let us forget this, Father. And we pray that we would not weary in doing good, that we would not weary in fighting against temptation and sin that trips us up. And whether day in or week in and out, if sin is tripping us up, we pray, Lord, that we would take it seriously, that we would view ourselves as a reflection upon you and that our image, the image of God in us, needs to always be polished and shined. We thank you for your presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen.